welcome to the Election Ride Home for Thursday, August 1st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, understanding last night's debate, who talked the most last night, key moments from the debate, and a little bit of wrap-up. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Well, specifically, really, just the debate this time. Okay, today we are handling the debate recap a little bit differently. Essentially, I'm going to give you some basic info about what happened and what the themes were. Then we're going to go full clip show mode for the rest of the time. I'll take a break in the middle for sponsors, but the majority of this show is clips and analysis. So prepare yourself, stay hydrated, whatever you need to do. Going into the debate, the big question was really about Biden. How would he perform? Would he succeed in defending himself from attacks? As the clear polling frontrunner, he was the target I most expected other candidates to go after. As we will hear in the clips, that did happen. But another dynamic emerged immediately. The candidates also went after Senator Kamala Harris. This makes sense as she got the big polling bump after the last debates because of her direct engagement with Biden. So, you know, if you're a candidate polling at 0 or 1%, it's probably logical to go after anybody with good poll numbers and attempt to pull them down in the hopes that you will get a bump up. Part of this is absolutely necessary in order for candidates to get polling numbers that allow them to continue appearing in DNC debates, the next one being in September, and those polls have to come in by the end of August. Which, by the way, somehow it's August now? Like, how did that happen? Anyway, right now, a lot of the people on stage need better polling and more donors in order to make it to the September debate. So, as with the previous night, we saw conflict and rehearsed lines and framing from CNN that encouraged conflict. It was a somewhat different vibe, though, with a lot more back and forth involving Biden and Harris, although they engaged various others and not just each other. But that also meant the distribution of time was rather different. Just watching it, though, I saw a good deal more of what a debate classically is. You know, like people ended up going through multiple rounds of follow-up back and forth without the moderators doing as much of that thing from Tuesday where they would just cut it off, then grab some random other candidate and change the subject. The other thing to note is that there were multiple interruptions by protesters in the audience. This was a real difference from all the previous nights, and you can go look up what those were about if you like. There's a link in the show notes. The night was also plagued by technical difficulties related to audio. I could nerd out on those, but I won't. Point being, you'll hear some scratchy stuff in the clips I play, but, you know, oh well. I will save my final analysis for the end of the show after you've heard the clips, so let's move into the other key thing you need to know before we dive in. In what is quickly becoming a grand tradition for both this show and literally everybody covering the debates, it is time to talk about talking. Specifically, how much talking each candidate did and why and whether we are okay with that. At the top of the list last night was Joe Biden with 21.2 minutes of total talk time. At the bottom was Andrew Yang who got 8.7 minutes. That's just under what John Hickenlooper got the night before. So, yet again, Yang somehow ends up with the least time of any candidate on these debate stages. Though, at least this time, it wasn't a total runaway, unlike the June debate that had him around three minutes. In between those two polls, you did have Kamala Harris with a very healthy 17.7 minutes, then Cory Booker with 12.8 minutes, Kirsten Gillibrand with 11.6, and the rest clustered right around 10 minutes, plus or minus 30 seconds or so. 
Now, the Washington Post did a nice analysis breaking down the manner of talking all of that time represented, whether it was, quote, time spent in back and forths, end quote, or what they called other time. That analysis is super important because it exposes why Biden and Harris got the most time. Their time was spent overwhelmingly in back and forth exchanges, rather than simply answering questions from the moderators. So let's compare for a moment. Yang, with his low 8.7 minutes, spent all of those minutes speaking what the Post called other time, meaning responses to original moderator questions or very brief two-part exchanges. So if you look at it that way, Yang got a much better ratio of putting his message first rather than brawling, and it's clear that nobody was going after him. Now, as for what counts as back and forth time, let me read from the post. Quote, The most testy and often least revealing exchanges were the ones the moderators instigated, calling out candidates with opposing policies and pitting them against each other. This conflict-heavy approach, coupled with an inconsistent enforcement of the time limits, created a debate that often reduced complicated policy discussions to unsatisfying soundbites. In 26 cases across the two nights, candidates got into back-and-forth exchanges that consisted of at least three answers or responses. Most of those exchanges were set up or encouraged by the moderators, and they made up a large portion of each evening's total time. End quote. So in short, the reason Biden-Harris topped the night in talk time is partly because everybody was going after them, sometimes at the urging of the moderators, and the two were going after each other, and the moderators encouraged all of this. They wanted to see candidates directly engaging, and the candidates showed up ready to engage with Biden and Harris. Okay, folks, it is clip show time. Now, last night's debate offered us a pile of tasty clips, but what I want to do is offer you not just the zingers, but the stuff that happened around the zingers. You know, the context matters, and sometimes actually listening to how a candidate speaks on the fly gives you a sense of how that person might react in, oh, say, a general election debate with the current president. Also, please keep in mind that I am summarizing two hours and 24 minutes of actual spoken content, so there is no way we're going to hit every single policy or important moment, but I'm going to give it my best shot. First up, let's mention the very first thing Joe Biden said as CNN brought the candidates up to the stage. Harris came up second to join Biden as he stood there, and Biden shook her hand, smiled, and, well, listen in. Josie on me, kid. Now, I did a bunch of work to try to isolate that dialogue from the roaring crowd. It was really hard to hear without a bunch of work, but there's only so much you can do. The key thing is that Biden said, quote, go easy on me, kid, end quote. And he actually caught a bunch of flack for that, given that there's only a 22-year age difference between them, and, you know, Harris is a senator and a grown-up. And she did not, in fact, go easy on him. Anyway, link in the show notes to more on that. Let's keep moving. This next clip is long, and it illustrates a bunch of key points from the overall debate. Now, this is an exchange between Booker and Biden on the issue of criminal justice. It also contains several notable zingers and gaffes. Now, I play this because I think it encapsulates so much of what this night was about. It is, for one thing, a very long back and forth. Again, that's what gave Biden so much time overall. And for another, it exposes all these rifts between the candidates. There are meaningful differences in generation, in race, in policy, and we get at them here. 
We already knew Booker was unhappy with Biden's past crime bills and his recently released plan. See previous shows for more on that, but we hadn't seen them face to face trying to hash it out. So I think you'll benefit from listening carefully to this exchange, and I will come back afterward to fill in some notes. Listen in. Senator Booker, your response? Well, my response is that this is a crisis in our country because we have treated issues of race and poverty, mental health and addiction with locking people up and not lifting them up. And Mr. Vice President has said that since the 1970s, every major crime bill, every crime bill, major and minor, has had his name on it. And sir, those are your words, not not mine. And this is one of those instances where the house was set on fire and you claimed responsibility for those laws. And you can't just now come out with a plan to put out that fire. We have got to have far more bold action Mm -hmm. on criminal justice reform, like having true marijuana justice, which means that we legalize it on a federal level and reinvest the profits in communities that have been disproportionately targeted by Vice President Biden, Vice President Biden, I want to give you a chance to respond. The fact is that the bills that the president, that the, excuse me, the future president here, that 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 the senator is talking about, are bills that were passed years ago and they're passed overwhelmingly. Since 2007, I, for example, tried to get the crack powder cocaine totally d- disparity totally eliminated. In 2007, you became mayor, and you had a police department that was. You went out and you hired Rudy Giuliani's guy. You engaged in stop and frisk. You had 75% of those stops reviewed as illegal. You found yourself in the situation where three times as many African-American kids were caught in that chain and caught up. The Justice Department came after you for saying you were, you were engaging in behavior that was inappropriate. And then, in fact, uh, and nothing happened the entire time you were mayor. Thank you, Sen- uh, Senator Booker, you want to respond? Well, first of all, I'm grateful that he endorsed my presidency already, but I'll yeah. tell you this, it's no secret that I inherited a criminal uh, a police department with massive problems and decades-long challenges. But the head of the ACLU has already said, um, the head of the New Jersey ACLU, that I put forth national standard-setting accountability. Mr. Time, Vice President, Mr. Vice President, I didn't interrupt you. Sorry, Please show me that respect, sir. We have a system right now that's broken. And if you want to compare records, and frankly, I'm shocked that you do, uh, I am happy to do that. Because all of the problems that he is talking about that he created, I actually led the bill that got passed into law that reverses the damage that your bills, that you were, frankly, to correct you, Mr. Vice President, you were bragging, calling it the Biden crime bill up till 2015. Vice President Biden. Number one, the bill he talks about is a bill that in my, our administration, we passed. We passed that bill that you added onto. That's the bill, in Mm -hmm. fact, you passed. And the fact of the matter is, secondly, there was nothing done for the entire eight years he was mayor. There was nothing done to deal with the police department that was corrupt. Why did you announce in the first day a zero tolerance policy of stop and frisk and hire Rudy Giuliani's guy in 2007 when I was trying to get rid of the crack cocaine? Uh, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, You need to... (laughs) You need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in place. The New Jersey head of the ACLU has said that I embraced reforms, not just in action, but in deed. Sir, you are trying to shift the view from what you created. There are people right now in prison for life for 
drug offenses because you stood up and used that tough on crime, phony rhetoric that got a lot of people elected, but destroyed communities like mine. This isn't about the past, sir. This is about the present right now. I believe in Thank redemption. You, I'm happy you evolved. I want to bring in but Secretary. But you offered no redemption to the people in wanna, prison right now. I want to bring life. in Secretary. Okay, so if you didn't follow that Kool-Aid thing, look, I'm not from New Jersey, but my understanding is that phrase is essentially Booker telling Biden he's sticking his nose in somebody else's business and he doesn't even understand what that business is. What's so interesting about that as a line, though, is that it is simultaneously generational, racial, and kind of related to policy. So if you're going to rehearse a line, that one ticks pretty much all of the boxes. All right, let's take a break now for sponsors. I will be back in a moment. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a fantastic podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance, or you just want to know more about investing in a casual, fun interview format, this show is a must listen. It's hosted by Meb Faber, who is CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So check out The Meb Faber Show wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So Biden wasn't the only one the other candidates went after. Harris was also a major target. Here's another long clip in which Representative Gabbard goes straight at Harris repeatedly, and again we get a sense of the distinction in this debate versus the previous night in terms of the back and forth. The gloves were off and the candidates were given room to have these one-on-one extended arguments without the moderators just grabbing some random other person and bringing them in. So, listen in. I want to bring in Congresswoman Gabbard. Congresswoman Gabbard, you took issue with Senator Harris confronting Vice President Biden at the last debate. You called it a quote false accusation that Joe Biden is a racist. What's your response? I want to bring the conversation back to the broken criminal justice system that is disproportionately negatively impacting black and brown people all across this country today. Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president, but I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected Attorney General of California, I did the work of 
significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why, and because I know that criminal justice system is so broken, that I am an advocate for what we need to do to not only decriminalize, but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. You're responsible. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, you owe them an apology. Senator Harris. My entire career, I have been opposed, personally opposed to the death penalty, and that has never changed. And I dare anybody who is in a position to make that decision, to face the people I have faced to say, I will not seek the death penalty. That is my background. That is my work. I am proud of it. I think you can judge people by when they are under fire, and it's not about some fancy opinion on a stage, but when they're in the position to actually make a decision, what do they do? When I was in the position of having to decide whether or not to seek a death penalty on cases I prosecuted, I made a very difficult decision that was not popular to not seek the death penalty. History shows that, and I am proud of those decisions. Senator Harris, thank you very much. There's a link in the show notes to a Vox explainer of Harris's complex history as the AG of California and DA in San Francisco, and it is worth reading those to get a sense of what Gabbard is going after here. Now, remember that Harris went after Biden's old positions in the last debate and benefited from it. So now other candidates are going after Harris's old positions, or at least their representations of those positions. And we'll have to see how the post-debate polling changes as a result. Okay, next topic. One big surprise was that in the middle of last night's event, a climate debate broke out. Now, this is part of what the DNC promised, that it would ask its media partners to include climate questions within each debate. And it seems CNN saved this for a moment when Jay Inslee happened to be on stage. So far, this is the most substantive discussion of climate that we've seen among these candidates in a debate. And I think it's instructive to listen to this exchange. Again, sorry, it's kind of a long one, but this is how we understand what a climate debate might indeed look like. In this clip, we hear from Inslee and Biden with a dash of Yang's fatalism in the middle. This did go on to include both Harris and Gillibrand, but I'm trying to keep these clips as short as possible. But just knowing that we had five candidates, that's half of everybody on the stage, involved in this specific climate exchange is really notable. That is a climate debate, albeit a brief one, and they are getting at policy here. All right, listen in. Governor Inslee. Many of your fellow Democratic candidates say climate change is the biggest existential threat facing the country. You, though, are calling it the number one priority in your campaign. What do you know that the others don't? Well, I know the firsthand terrific impact of climate change on Americans across the country already. The family who I saw with their aluminum home, now just a pile of molten aluminum, they lost everything in the paradise of fires, the nonprofit in Davenport, Iowa, that was washed away in the floods. We have to act now. 
Look, climate change is not a singular issue. It is all the issues that we Democrats care about. It is health. It is national security. It is our economy. And we know this, middle ground solutions, like the vice president has proposed, or sort of middling, uh, average-sized things are not going to save us. Too little, too late is too dangerous. And we have to have a bold plan, and mine has been called the gold standard. Now, we also need to embed environmental justice. I was in zip code 48217 in the Detroit neighborhood the other day, right next to an oil refinery where the kids have asthma and they have cancer clusters. And after talking to these folks, I believe Thank this, you. I believe this, it doesn't matter what your zip code you, is. Governor. It doesn't matter what your color is. You ought to have clean Thank air and you, clean Governor. water in America. That's Vice what I Vice President believe. Biden, I'd like to get you to respond. Governor Inslee just said that your plan is middling. There is no middle ground about my plan. The fact of the matter is, I call for the immediate action to be taken. First of all, one of the things that we, we're responsible for 15% of all the pollution in the country. He's right about how it affects people and it affects neighborhoods, particularly poor neighborhoods. But here's the deal. In that area, there's also another piece. 85% of it is something I helped negotiate, and that is the Paris Climate Accord. I would immediately rejoin that Paris Accord. I would make sure that we up the ante, which it calls for. I would be able to bring those leaders together who I know. I'd, I'd convene them in the White House like we did the nuclear summit, and I would raise the standard. Thank you, I Mr. also Vice invest President. $400 billion Thank you, sir. in research for new alternatives to deal with climate change. Mr. Yang, and that's your better than, bigger than any other person. The important number in Vice President Biden's remarks just now is that the United States is only 15% of global emissions. We like to act as if we're 100%, but the truth is even if we were to curb our emissions dramatically, the earth is still going to get warmer. And we can see it around us this summer. The last four years have been the four warmest years in recorded history. This is going to be a tough truth, but we are too late. We are 10 years too late. We need to do everything we can to start moving the climate in the right direction, but we also need to start moving our people to higher ground. And the best way to do that is to put economic resources into your hands so you can protect yourself and your families. I was challenged Thank by the you, Vice Senator. President. Maybe you heard on this for a moment. Go ahead, Governor. Thank you very much. Look, we have, these deadlines are set by science. Mr. Vice President, sure. your argument with, is not with me, it's with science. And unfortunately, your plan is just too late. The science tells us we have to get off coal in 10 years. Yes. Your plan does not do that. We have to have off of fossil fuels in our electrical grid in 15. Your plan simply does not do that. I've heard you say that we need a realistic plan. Here's what I no, believe. I didn't say that. Here's what I believe. I believe that survival is realistic, and that's the kind of plan we need, and that's the kind I have. My plan calls for 500,000 charging stations around the country, so by 2030, we're all electric vehicles. My plan calls for being, making sure that we have $400 billion invested in technology to learn how to contain what we're doing, creating 10 million new jobs. We will double offshore wind. We will end any subsidies for coal or any other fossil fuel. But we have to also engage the world while we're doing it. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Just to clarify, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, it would be, we, would, we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those, either any fossil fuel. We, can't, we cannot you, work sir. it out. 
We cannot work this out. The time is up. Our house is on fire. We have to stop using coal in 10 years. And we need a president to do it or it won't get done. Get off coal. Save this country and the planet. That's That's what what I'm for. Okay, we are approaching the end here. I want to play a segment from Yang's closing statement, which reflects kind of what Yang was getting at all night, which was to explain things in real terms. He came across as an outsider, and it's because he's not an elected official. And then he would always pivot his solution to a universal basic income, which he calls the freedom dividend. Now, we can differ on whether the UBI is the right solution, but Yang does a good job of exposing the innate weirdness of this whole process in really plain, clear language. Listen in. You know what the talking heads couldn't stop talking about after the last debate? It's not the fact that I'm somehow number four on this stage in national polling. It was the fact that I wasn't wearing a tie. Instead of talking about automation in our future, including the fact that we automated away four million manufacturing jobs, hundreds of thousands right here in Michigan, we're up here with makeup on our faces and our rehearsed attack lines, playing roles in this reality TV show. It's one reason why we elected a reality TV star as our president. We need to be laser focused on solving the real challenges of today. Like the fact that the most common jobs in America may not exist in a decade, or that most Americans cannot pay their bills. My flagship proposal, the Freedom Dividend, would put $1,000 a month into the hands of every American adult, be a game changer for millions of American families. And finally, the clip that gives today's show its name, No Shelter, came from Gabbard's closing statement. It got at a theme of the night related not just to nuclear policy, but also to climate change. The candidates spent time shifting between policies that affect people at the local level and then all the way up to policies that affect the entire globe. And I think this clip encapsulates that kind of global problem thinking, although it's specifically about the mistaken nuclear strike warning that happened last year, but it's also a reasonable metaphor for climate change. Listen in. Now, as we stand here tonight, there are thousands of nuclear missiles pointed at us. And if we were to get an attack right here tonight, we would have 30 minutes 30 minutes before we were hit. And you would receive an alert like the one we received in Hawaii last year that would say, incoming missile, seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And you would see as we did, as my loved ones in Hawaii did, there is no shelter. This is the warmongers hoax. There is no shelter. It's all a lie. Okay, so what do we make of this whole thing overall? Well, I'm going to try to make this very simple. Biden did relatively well. Yes, he misspoke a lot, and yes, everybody attacked him, but he remains the frontrunner in this race. Booker also did very well, and I think we may see a Harris-like bump in the polls for Booker. So we might soon see Booker enter that hallowed ground of upper-tier candidates after this performance. The biggest news of the night was that, frankly, Harris didn't do very well. She often seemed off balance, and it just didn't come together like last time. Having said that, I think the level of expectation put on Harris for this debate probably made it inevitable that she would quote-unquote underperform, given that she crushed it so hard last time. So Harris is by no means out of that upper tier of candidates, she just didn't have an awesome, crushingly great night either. It was in fact kind of a bad night. So I look forward to seeing those September debates, and honestly, more than that, I look forward to whatever this month will bring. 
Remember, we don't have a DNC debate this month, so this is a golden opportunity to take a month and watch for the candidates to spend all that time doing their own thing. And in many cases, that will explicitly mean trying to qualify for the September debate. But I will keep you posted on all of that as we go. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, we are running long yet again, so I'm going to keep this end part short. I am sitting on a healthy set of listener questions, and I hope to get to several of those in the next few shows. Keep sending in your questions however you like. Twitter is good for me, but Facebook also works, and I will put them on the list. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.